something I want to share um, today, and I'm um, going to pull it from an Old Testament narrative. Um, years ago, my father-in-law, who's one of the most genuine men I've ever met, when my wife and I we were college sweethearts, when we were dating, um, one of the first things he did once he found out I was a reader, he gave me books. And the uh, first book he gave me, it had to be like 800 pages. It was this book called The Spiritual Man by this Chinese. He's really, he's an underrated theologian. He really, he really is. He wasn't formally trained, but his name was Watchman Nee. And uh, wrote under great persecution in China. And, um, and there's something that he said in that book, it stuck out to me. He said, you get to a point in your spiritual journey where you begin to talk about what God has done and is doing with you using the words of scripture. And what I want to share with you is something that the Lord's kind of walked me through. I feel like I've been in accelerated training in this area uh, since the beginning of 2015. So the last couple of years so the Lord's really been tattooing my heart with this. So I want to share it with you. Hopefully it adds value um, to you in a way that is similar to the way it's added value to me. I'm just going to read two verses, Numbers 20, the 20th chapter of Numbers. I'm going to read two verses, verses 11 and 12, and I'm going to leap right into my lesson and um, we'll go from there. Verse 11 says, then Moses raised his arm, struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to honor me in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land. I give them. Probably one of the most saddest statements in scripture. And so I like to tag titles to texts uh, as something for us to think around. And I want to talk from this subject. I want us to think about this idea. And it's a question. The question is, can you see it? Can you see it? Last night, we talked about the preeminent nature of faith in all of scripture, but specifically in the New Testament. Uh, faith is fundamental to our faith, and when something is fundamental to the faith, we can't afford to be elementary in our understanding of it. Salvation cannot be experienced without faith. Prayer is not effective without faith. And Hebrews 11:6 says, God cannot be pleased without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because faith is an expression of worship. Faith speaks to the credibility of the character of the person you've got your faith in. When I don't know about you, but when I'm in trouble, uh, well, when I'm in certain situations, I know who not to call. Right? This is why prayer honors God because prayer can be an expression of faith. But this is kind of where I want to put my flag in the ground here today. Faith does not 
alter God's will, it accomplishes it. Am I making sense? And so with that being the case, one of the things that I think is important for us to understand is how faith, which gives us a set of eyes, allows us to see us and our future as God sees it. And that's called vision. Vision is a picture, this is important, of God's preferred future for us. It's a picture of his preferred future. It's what he prefers to do. It's what he wants to do. It is what he is willing to move heaven and earth to do. But his preference does not become our experience without our participation. So all vision is is a picture of possibility. But without our participation, that possibility does not become our reality. Therefore, I want to argue that fulfilling God's vision for our lives or for that which we have influence and leadership over not only requires our best work, it also requires that we become our best self. Jesus himself was stretched on the cross, not his gift. Because purpose stretches you. Therefore, my most important work is me, the most consequential and important person I will ever lead is me because the biggest obstacle between me and my redemptive potential is me. D.L. Moody is quoted as saying, there is no man that has caused me as much trouble as the man in the mirror. Therefore, whether or not vision, a picture of God's preferred future for us, is fulfilled isn't just based on what we see out there. It's not can we see out there. It's can we see in here. Do we have insight? Because whether or not I see, whether or not I experience what I see out there is going to be based on whether or not I'm living with blind spots in here. And when I look specifically, not exclusively, but specifically at the Old Testament, and I see people who don't reach their redemptive potential, It is never because they didn't have vision out there. It was because they had blind spots in here. 
It was not a lack of giftedness. It was not a lack of support. More often than not, the reason great men fall is because they don't have insight. And a case study of this principle is seen right in the text that we just read with one of the most influential, celebrated figures in all of scripture, a man named Moses. And I think we have, when I say we, I mean many communicators have so sanitized his story that we are robbed of the value of the lessons that God wants us to learn not just from the way he started but from the way he ended you see many of us are familiar with the context in which Moses was called right it's, it's an incredible story um, God makes clear to Moses Who's, who's living with this double consciousness. I'm gonna talk about that in a minute, right? So he's Hebrew, but he's raised Egyptian. So it's this double consciousness. So he doesn't quite fit in because he's too Hebrew to be fully Egyptian, but he's too influenced by Egyptian culture to be fully Hebrew. And so God calls him, tells him how he wants to use him. Moses responds to God's calling with his inadequacy. I'm slow of speech and God instructs and informs him how he wants to use him, but he gives him very specific vision. He's going to lead Israel in their exodus out of Egypt into Canaan. The plan was always Egypt to Canaan. Canaan was his preferred future for them. And Moses had been given the responsibility to lead them out and to lead them in. As they come out of Exodus, in Exodus chapter number 13, the Bible says God did not lead Israel by way of the land of the Philistines, although that land was shorter, unless they see war and go back to Egypt. So he led them by way of the wilderness. That's what the text says, right? So he doesn't lead them to the short way. Because even though they were ready to get out of Egypt and ready to get into Canaan, they were not ready to fight the Philistines. Does that make sense? See, because uh, whenever you get something that you do want, you're also going to get something you don't want. And so sometimes God delays what you do want, not because you're not ready for what you do want, but he delays what you do want because you're not ready for what you don't want. Did you hear what I just said? You see... They got out of Egypt, but when you get out of Egypt, you got to fight Philistines, right? So they got some of what they did want, but they also get some, some of what they didn't want because there's a backside to every blessing. The front side is the promotion. The back side is the pressure. The front side is the notoriety. The back side is the bubble. The front side is the increased responsibility. The back side is the increased stress. 
And there are times where we feel delayed and put off by God when we don't understand that God's saying, I'm not, I'm not delaying the front side, I'm delaying the back side. Because you can't get the front without getting the back. So he led them through the wilderness. The wilderness was simply intended to be a route. But they ended up making a state out of what God wanted to be a stage. You never hear God talking to Moses about the wilderness. This is interesting on how you frame it, right? Because it's like, well, this is where God wanted him. But God never talked to him about the wilderness. He only talked to him about Canaan. And if Moses, we just read the text, if Moses had an expectation to stay in Canaan, then the text that I just read is unnecessary. Why would God tell Moses, you are not going to bring them into Canaan, if Moses did not have an expectation to bring them into Canaan? Moses himself was expecting to lead them into Canaan. And God says to Moses, you're going to stop here. This is a very sobering scripture because you see a man who accomplished much but did not accomplish all he could. He stopped short of God's best for his life. He was living with a picture of a preferred future that never became his actual reality. So I think the question, it's a quintessential question that most of us either consciously or unconsciously are wrestling with is why? What happened with Moses that caused him to stop short of God's preferred future for him? Before we look at what it is, let's look at what it isn't. It wasn't because of a lack of presence consciousness. It wasn't because he had an unhealthy devotional life. What if I told you his devotional life was quite healthy? What if I told you he had the kind of engagement with God that we long for and dream about? I'm talking about the kind of engagement that after, on a couple of occasions, that when he left times of communion with God, his face was emanating with the glory of God. That he and God had such an intimate relationship with one another, that when he, re that when he made a relationship choice, that his sister and his brother were upset about and they begin to speak ill of Moses that God corrects them and says to them all of my other prophets I speak to in dreams and in visions but my servant Moses I speak to him face to face so I know we need to pray more and I know we need to be with God more, and I know we need to worship passionately, but Moses had all of that, and he still didn't make it. 
Sometimes you can diagnose the problem right, but get the prescription wrong. So it wasn't an, it wasn't an anemic devotional life. He wasn't ignorant of scripture. David said, that word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. I mean, when you talk about scripture, when God give it to you and you come down from the mountain with a stone, <laughs> with, with a tablet of stone with the word of God, you, you kind of got it directly. <laughs> so there's, there's no word deficit. Healthy devotional life, rooted and grounded in truth. He's not in error. He's not a victim to false doctrine. Orthodoxy equals orthopractice. Right doctrine, right practice. Can't live a good life with bad information. He had the information right. This, this third one is interesting too. We could say to some degree, he didn't even have a moral failure. Committed to his spouses, not committing idolatry. They worship the golden calf, he didn't. So when we aren't progressing and wondering why, when we are stepping into God's Canaan land for us, run, wondering why, sometimes the answers that people give us fall within those three categories, kind of like get your life right, get your prayer life right, and get in the word. That's not incorrect. I'm about to argue it's incomplete. I'm about to argue that we are suffering from a reductionist doctrine of sanctification. A sanctification that erroneously assumes the only thing God wants to fix is your morals. And it reduces Christianity to moralistic therapeutic deism where the only thing we're actually doing is living ethically, engaging in spiritual disciplines, and then coming to corporate worship gatherings, engaging in outreach, and that becomes the sum total of the Christian life. God wants to do more than change my morals. God wants to change my life. Did you hear what I just said? He wants to do more than make me right. He wants to make me well. He wants to make me whole. He wants to find the broken pieces of my life and put me back together again. He wants to redeem my life from destruction. I want to do more than live morally and come to church and do outreach. Jesus said he came that I might have a life and that I might have it to the full. I want that. He said that he'll give me joy unspeakable and full of glory. I want that. He said he'll give me peace that passes all understanding. I want that. And if I don't have that, Praying, worshiping, studying, and living ethically. What's wrong? And, and I want to share this with you. Moses didn't have a problem with righteousness. Are you ready, family? He had a problem with wholeness.
He had all the spiritual accessories that we assume that we need to step into the fullness of God's best for our life, but he also had an unidentified, unaddressed emotional issue that he erroneously assumed would be straightened out without intentionality by his spirituality. That what stopped Moses wasn't that he wasn't righteous, it was that he was not whole. He wasn't well. It was unidentified. It was unaddressed, unaddressed, an emotional issue that he erroneously assumed his spirituality would straighten out without intentionality. Some issues require intentionality. He didn't see that his soul was suffering, his ministry was soaring, his influence was soaring, but his soul was suffering because he was still, even though he had millions of people under his leadership, he was still the stuttering, stammering, confused, insecure boy whose life got changed because God burned a bush. And he thought, his calling was his healing. Your calling is not your healing. There's someone right now, someone right now who is insecure, dealing with father wounds, dealing with mother wounds, overachievers, ambition. Right now they're dealing with this and they're gonna post a YouTube video uh, of them singing or doing something incredible and someone's going to discover it and overnight their popularity, their notoriety, their economic reality is going to change and we can assume that because all that change they still aren't that insecure, confused, wounded individual that they were before they posted the YouTube video. That happens in ministry too. It's what happened with Moses. Yeah, this, this issue that we see showing up here at the end of Numbers, it's an anger issue. But if we aren't familiar with this narrative, then we wouldn't know this isn't the first time this showed up. So I wanna show you, his calling wasn't his healing. Because we see an instance, as he's dealing with this double consciousness and he doesn't quite know what it feels like not to quite fit in to either tribe. So the Hebrews don't kind of accept me. The Egyptians don't kind of accept me. And he saw an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew. He defends the Hebrew, kills the Egyptian, doesn't he? What does he do when he kills him? He buries him. Because that's what we do with unaddressed issues. You bury the evidence. I'm gonna bury it. I'm gonna bury the evidence. Instead of stopping to say, what exists in me that would cause me to act like that? I bury it and then I make a commitment to works righteousness 
and I'll promise myself I won't do it anymore. Let me hide what I did and then promise myself I won't do it anymore instead of pausing for a minute to ask myself, why did I do it? What is it in me that, that, that made me say that? What is it in me that made me feel that way? What is it in me that makes me insecure about everyone else's success? What is it in me that, that makes it really happy for me to be happy for someone who has what I want? And so instead of owning what I'm feeling, I bury it and act like jealousy in there, envy in there, ambition in there. This is what's interesting though, right? This is what's interesting. Because if a person says Moses has an anger problem, they misdiagnose this issue. Because anger is a secondary emotion. It is not what you feel first. You feel hurt and then you get angry. You feel that you've been handled unjustly and then you get angry. You feel robbed and then you, you feel angry. And so angry is a secondary emotion. So he buries, he kills this man, buries him. And then this is what's amazing. God calls it. God uses it. He's parting red seas. He's throwing sticks in the water and turning bitter water to sweet water. I mean, he's having one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, if anything would fix this, you would think Sinai would have fixed it. I mean, take off your shoes. It's holy ground. He's having all these incredible encounters with God. Get up every morning and go to the tent of meeting to meet God. And when he would walk to the tent of meeting, Israel would stand and watch him as he walked to go meet with God. All of that. And he hit a place where that same thing showed up again. Because his calling is not his healing. See, just because it's dormant doesn't mean it's not present. It's, it's interesting here because what Moses is obviously dealing with is what the Apostle Paul calls a stronghold. And when Paul uses that word, talking to believers in Corinth, he is referring to the mental and the emotional and the psychological realm. Strongholds, fortresses. Right? He says, he says, we pull down strongholds, fortresses. Strongholds, fortresses, these unbiblical thinking patterns, thought processes that are contrary to the word and the will of God, and they function like a fortress. So when the word of God tries to penetrate that area, it can't get through because the stronghold's there. 
Jesus talks about this in Matthew when he talks about the condition of a person's heart and how that heart is like soil and he talks about stones. Denise Box calls this stony hearts that are a result of injury. It's a heart with a scab and until that scab is removed, the word can't penetrate. And this is why people have notebooks filled with forgiveness and they still can't forgive. Because that word couldn't get through because that stronghold hadn't been removed. It's falling on stony ground. And we judge people for strongholds when many strongholds are simply a consequence of pain that wasn't processed properly. Loss that people didn't have time to grieve. Deficits and unmet needs that people did not have an opportunity to identify. And what's weird is Moses's emotional issue showed up in a way that is blatantly immoral. What's dangerous in our culture is some of, some of our emotional issues can show up in ways that are unhealthy to us, but celebrated by culture. Right, like this whole idea of not resting. It's celebrated by because, you know, hashtag grind. You know, I'll sleep when I die. Right? Not realizing that, that the inability to stop is not an indication of strength. It's, a, it's an indication of weakness. Yeah. That emotional fortitude is revealed, is revealed in the person's ability to say no. <laughs> because sometimes, this isn't talked about a lot in church, church culture either, sometimes your assignment is not to be Jesus. Sometimes your assignment is to be John the Baptist. And you gotta be a healthy dude to be John the Baptist. You have the popularity, you have the notoriety, you have the influence, you have the disciples, and now here comes your cousin named Jesus, and you look at him, and you say, I gotta decrease. Because it's, it's like we assume that the plan of God always means increase, and the plan of God always means more. You really don't have to be healthy to go there, you gotta be healthy to handle it, but you know where it takes health and a whole soul? Is to say, I'm cool with decreasing. because I haven't confused me with my fanfare. I haven't confused my life's calling with my seasonal role. They, they aren't the same. See, Moses' issues were showing up in different ways, right? They were showing up in different ways that were celebrated. That, that before it got to something that was so destructive that God said it is not in my best interest or your best interest or the interest of Israel that I continue to let you serve in this way, it was showing up in ways that, that were celebrated. I mean, there are times where people were looking at, at what Moses were doing and, and they were celebrating the fact uh, that there are times where he overfunctioned. So, He's 
more committed, he was more committed to helping people than they were helping themselves. So he committed himself beyond that which was feasible or necessary. It was a consequence of poor limit setting. It's when, it's when you allocate more resources than you're able to provide. It is to commit to others to the detriment of yourself. It's what Martha did when Jesus kept coming to the house. And so people who are overcommitted are always resenting Mary. Right? And that shows up kind of in ministry, doesn't it? The people that complain about the work but don't want anyone else to do it. Maybe that's just Jersey. I'll try that on this side. Right? It's just the, the kind of territorialism. Right? Sometimes you can, you can misdiagnose hyper-commitment and someone can be just incredibly committed and we can say, oh, this person is a game changer that they're commit and we don't even know what's driving that commitment. Moses over-functioned. Um, some people would say that Moses, you know, he was so helpful. Moses is just so helpful whenever you need him. He is so helpful, but if you pull back the layers, you'll see that what some people called helpful is what others could have said. This is a man that's unclear on his assignment. One of the most dangerous things about being able to do multiple things is that you're able to do multiple things. Ability isn't always assignment. Right? And Stephen Covey says passion is what we love to do. Talent is what we can do. But purpose is what we're assigned to do. Had a man who was, he was unclear on his assignment and he's judging people and helping people and over-engaged in their life and Jethro has to come and bring some order and, and structure um, to his life and other people might look at Moses and say he was so considerate of others but someone healthy may look at him and say he's undervaluing himself and putting up with unhealthy relationships because of his fear of rejection and not allowing God to remove people from his life that God wanted to remove from his life. Let's, let's talk about this, right? Because when you sanitize stories, you interpret them with a dangerous hermeneutic. And I'm gonna tell you why. Let's say, for example, let's look at the instance where God tells Moses, all right, these people do not have the appetite that is required to go beyond the wilderness. I'm going to remove them and raise up another generation that will obey you. Moses prays a prayer asking God to intervene and to not follow through on his intention. God says to Moses, this is interesting, because you made the request, I will honor it, but this is what he says, they will wander 40 years and they will not go in. He says, Moses, me answering your prayer is delaying the inevitable. I'm not going to bother this much, but because 
you're wrestling with abandonment issues. You can't discern that this company is unhealthy because you'd rather be around people that are unhealthy than be alone. <laughs> because all you know is when you were born, your mother had to give you up. And some people erroneously assume, well, his mother raised him. That's not true. It says she nursed him. That's it. So he knows he's not Egyptian. Pharaoh's probably too busy. We don't hear much of anything about his dad. Of course he doesn't want those people to leave. He's always felt alone. And it's bad to need the people you leave. Moses needed them too much. This is my point as a prepared to wrap this up. This is my point. We see Moses needed more than the Spirit's work on his morals. He needed the Spirit's work on his brokenness. That sanctification involves heart healing. And just because I'm not hurting doesn't mean I'm not hurt. Because there's some soul wounds that are a result of something that happened that shouldn't have. Someone betrayed you, someone hurt you, someone lied, someone took advantage of you, someone broke your trust. When you stood at the altar, you said to death do us part and you meant it. Someone else meant only till it's no longer convenient. And you pray and you read the word, but there's a wound in that heart that requires intentionality. You catch sickness, you don't catch health. So some wounds are a result of what someone did and they shouldn't have but see there are other soul wounds that are a result of what someone should have did and they didn't some of us didn't get what Jesus got before he began his earthly ministry that is the public affirmation of a father before he performed one miracle before he opened one blind eye he gets baptized and then a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he didn't do ministry for affirmation. He did ministry out of affirmation. Because I can't chase purpose and needs at the same time. Some badness is a result of brokenness. And until we address the brokenness, you can't fix the badness. I'm not just telling you what I saw from Moses' story. I'm telling you what I saw from my own. Mm -hmm. 
now by the time I was, what, 33, 34, people would think I had it all. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget walking across the parking lot in 2015, June. My doctoral robe in one hand, wife, kids, walking to the car, waiting on my dad to say I'm proud of you. And I didn't know how much I wanted him to say it until he did If you would have asked me, did I want him to say it, I would have I told you no, because I didn't know how much I wanted him to say it until, until he didn't. And I, I got back to the place we were staying and I just sat and I thought and my wife could tell something was wrong and you should have been more excited than this and I looked at it, all I had accomplished by that age and I had to ask myself what well, is this good why did I do this really I can tell y'all you know God at this moment but I'm Why was, why was it never enough? Why was it every time I got there, I realized there was another there? Because every, way, every, every time you graduate to a new level, you start at the bottom. You're a senior in high school, that's the top. You go to college, you're at the bottom. Not all over again. Why was enough never enough? And I looked, and it hit me. It took me years to get through this. My pastor had to help me. I looked, and I looked at my youngest son, and it hit me that the past three, four years had been a blur. I was at games. I wasn't there. Everybody thought I was wonderful, though. I was there, I wasn't there. I wasn't, I wasn't in sin, had prayer life, disciplines. But I didn't even know how my brokenness was breaking me. Because no matter how many degrees, how much influence, I was still a boy that was waiting on his daddy to say, you did good. So I've been walking through this. I may not be able to talk as much to the sisters, but fellas, I've been walking through this, so you can't fool me. I've been there, you can't fool me. No matter how big your muscles are, how big the bank account is, you can't fool me. 
needed him to say you did good. Some of you, that wasn't your issue, but you had to grow up too fast. Some of you had parents that weren't ready to be parents. And you had to grow up way too fast. You didn't have a childhood. That hurt. I don't know what your hurt is. But maybe the Holy Spirit, who's our illuminator, is showing you wounds you've put in the cracks and in the crevices of your, your heart. I want to get, show you something that I felt like helped me get this. If you see my dad's hand to this day, his pinky finger won't extend all the way out. That's because when I was like 13, we were playing basketball and I came down and I broke it. I remember breaking his finger. He never went to the doctor about it. And years later, I asked him, I said, Rev, why do you, um, why do you get that fixed? He said, well, I went to the doctor and they said to me, they got to re-break it. And so I said, don't worry about it. And he said to them, don't worry about it. Here's a lesson. Just because it doesn't hurt doesn't mean it's not broken. And sometimes for God to fix it, you got to let him touch it one more time. And I know it hate, it hurts to revisit it, but sometimes you gotta let them touch it one more time. And I know you don't wanna think about that again and feel those floods of emotions because it took you so long to get through that, but sometimes you gotta let them touch it one more time because there are many people who are sitting in churches and your heart looks like this. My dad could use that finger, but he couldn't get full use out of it. And God's like, I wanna get full use out of that heart. I want to get full use out of that heart. I want to get full use out of that heart. And I learned the importance of the house of God and the family of God and being reparented in God's house and how God uses spiritual fathers to put, to put, to, to put, to fulfill deficits that were left there by natural fathers and how God will always make provision for you in the area of your brokenness if you are willing to allow him to shine the light on it and say, I will not live being less than your best for my life. And I want to tell you, the past three years have been the best years of my life. I am the happiest I have ever been. My family is better than I've ever been and I am a better spiritual father than I've ever been because I couldn't father right until I got healed from my father wounds.